If you have your Bible this morning, I'd love for you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. There are kind of two main ways to get into a pool. Uh, and I like to swim personally in a, in a warm pool, like 88 degrees is my, my sweet spot. Uh, and so I'm kind of cautious when it comes to, to getting into a pool. I like to, you know, test the, the water out and then slowly adjust step by step until I kind of gently, you know, eventually glide in. Uh, but the other way to get into a pool is very different. It's how kids do it, uh, because kids don't care how warm or cold a pool is as long as it's wet. I mean, they could be in there, the lips are purple and blue, and they're chattering, but hey, it's a pool, and so they'll be there. And so what kids do, of course, is they take off running and do this deep dive cannonball into the deep end uh, and splash all in at once. And Hebrews kind of does a cannonball in the deep end when it comes to the beginning of this letter. If you're familiar with other church letters that we see in the New Testament, you might notice that in Hebrews, there's no opening salutation, there's no introduction, there's no prayer, uh, no greetings. It just jumps right in to the heart of the issue. And I love that you can tell this, this, this passion and this energy that the author of Hebrews brings to this, uh, this letter uh, with just the, the energy with which he jumps into this first sentence, these first three verses. Because though it is three verses for us divided uh, into three sentences English and Greek, in the original language, it is one 64-word long sentence describing the greatness of Jesus. And though an English teacher would have flunked the author of Hebrews for writing a 64-word sentence, these three verses contain some of the greatest and most powerful words of Scripture as they describe the person and work of Jesus. Last week, as we were introduced to this book, we discussed the situation that these Jewish Christians to whom this letter is written find themselves in. They have faced persecution and hardship, social ostracism, doubts and fears, and they have, through all of this, become weary, spiritually weary. They're in this season where, devoid of, of hope, their worship has become a struggle, their prayer feels impossible, morale is low, and hope is all but gone, as they wonder if they would just not be better off if they were to abandon this whole Jesus thing. And it's in this weariness and in this struggle that they are given this description of Jesus this morning that I think still has power for us today. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, I'm going to ask you to do just kind of a little thought experiment for a minute. When I say Jesus, if you had to describe Jesus in just one word, what word would you use? I know it's a difficult task. I mean, there's so many words that we could use, and that changes based on even where we're talking about as Jesus. Are we talking about him pre-incarnate, Jesus as he walked among us, Jesus after his resurrection? All of those things change. But I would be ventured to guess the words kind of floating around in your mind right now are words like holy or loving. Maybe it's forgiving and compassionate, uh, peace, redeemer, healer, friend, teacher, savior, God. And I think as we look at this, we ask the author of Hebrews, if we were to ask him for his one-word answer for Jesus, based on these three verses, I think he would unequivocally say, big, that Jesus is big. 
And for most of us, we would readily agree with this assessment. The Son of God who came to live among us and who healed the eyes of the man born blind and brought hearing to the ears of the deaf, who raised the dead to life, who was crucified and raised to life himself and defeated the grave. I mean, that's big. And while we might agree with that statement, though, on an intellectual level, I think it often gets lost in how we live our lives in relation to Jesus. Many people like to have a a Jesus of their own creation, or Jesus that is comfortable and familiar to them. Many people create kind of a Mr. Rogers Jesus. You know, he's jovial and friendly. He's he's non-threatening in his pastel cardigan. He's He's a good neighbor. Maybe it's for them a buddy Jesus. I mean, they like to hang out with him, but he really doesn't make any demands on your life. Maybe it's a distant relative, kind of crazy uncle Jesus, the guy you see on holidays and try to give a, get along with just enough until the next one. But there are really kind of two main images with these, these portrayals, uh, or two, two main problems with these images of Jesus. And the first is that he is incapable of rescuing us from our sin. These caricatures are incapable of doing much of anything for us, really. And maybe that's the appeal. I mean, maybe the, how the, the thought process is if I can just fit Jesus into this mold of my own liking, of my own creation, then maybe I won't be saved, but I'll at least be safe. Safe from any requirements or any discomfort, any sacrifice to which he might call me. The other problem is that these images, these characters, just simply aren't compatible with the Jesus that we see throughout the Bible. I love the way Dorothy Sayers put it. She, Dorothy was a, a theologian and contemporary of C.S. Lewis. And she said this about Jesus, the people who hanged Christ, never to do them justice, accused him of being boring. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to stifle that shattering personality and surround him with the atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently declawed the lion of Judah, certifying to him as meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. To those who knew him, however, he in no way suggested a milk and water person. They objected to him as a dangerous revolutionary. Mrs. Sayers is saying that as we look at the Jesus of Scripture, nowhere do we find this Jesus that is non-threatening to our way of life, non-threatening to the ways that we choose to live. That even the ones who crucified him recognize that he is dangerous and big, we allow him to enter into our lives, dangerous to our way of life, the old way of life. And so I think the question that Hebrews 1 presents us with this morning is the question, is your Jesus big enough? Are the ways that we describe Jesus big enough to adequately portray who he is and what he has done? And I think it's a pertinent question considering where we began last week and maybe where you find yourself this morning or just in this season of life. In these moments where we feel weary and worn out and we're wondering what we're doing and pursuing Jesus, when we're spiritually weary and ready to throw in the towel, too overwhelmed to move forward, maybe what we need is a bigger picture of Jesus. And so in order to do that this morning, to give us this bigger picture of Jesus, Hebrews sets before us the roles that Jesus fills better than anyone else, greater than anyone else. But to understand these roles, we kind of have to Uh, kind of put our yarmulkes on for a little bit this morning, step into this as a Jewish person would read this letter. See, throughout the Gospels, the one question asked over and over of Jesus time and time again is the question, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? 
And the reason this question is important is we tend to think of Messiah as this title, much like pastor or minister or reverend, but Messiah was so much more than that. Messiah literally means anointed one. To be anointed was to have this oil poured on your head ceremoniously, signifying a new role that God had for you. And in the Old Testament, there are three different roles that the Old Testament shows us that were anointed position, Messiah-type positions. The first were prophets, the mouthpieces of God, those who spoke God's truth to God's people. We also see anointed were priests, representatives of God, those who would offer sacrifices for the people and be this mediator, be this bridge between God and humanity. And we also see those that anointed were kings, those who would rule on God's behalf, leading God's people to be closer to him. And there's a common thread through all of these roles, and that's all of them attempt to bridge the gap between people and God. All of them are roles highlighting the distance between our sin and God's holiness. All of them are a role that stands in the middle between God and his people. God would use his prophets to speak to his people. God would use his priests to serve his people. God would use his kings to shepherd his people. But then Jesus comes, not as a, a human representative, but as God himself to bridge the gap in a way that none of these, in a way that none of us could ever do. And so what we see in these first few verses and this role of Jesus that he plays for us is that Jesus is a better prophet. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He's saying all throughout history, God used these, these people, these prophets, to speak to his people in special ways. He spoke to Moses through a burning bush. He communicated Israel through a pillar of cloud and fire. He spoke to Abraham and sent his angels to be his messengers. But then Jesus comes and he speaks in a different way. He speaks as one with authority. Over and over again, what we see in the Gospels as Jesus preaches sermons and teaches the people, as they come away amazed at the authority with which he speaks. In other words, he wasn't just another person conveying a message on God's behalf. He was God's message. That all of Scripture points to Jesus as the one to whom God calls us to listen. And so we see that Jesus is a better prophet. That no longer do we have to rely on others' words, but we see Jesus himself speaking life and hope into our lives. You see that Jesus is a better priest. For thousands of years, God had used priests to be the connection to his people. The priests would serve as these mediators, this bridge between God and man, offering sacrifice year after year after year. But then Jesus came, fully God and fully man, and created that bridge within himself, offering a sacrifice that wouldn't have to be offered year after year, but offered once for all time, providing, as Hebrew says, the purification for sins. And then we see also that Jesus is a better king. The nation of Israel was never meant to be led by kings. God himself was to be their king, but because of their insistence, God gave them what they wanted, even when he knew it wouldn't be what was best for them. And so for year, year upon year, the kings of Israel, though some of them were good, many of them led the nation deeper into idolatry and immorality. But then Jesus came, and the very first words of his ministry are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus came as a king, not with a crown, not with a ring that he demanded others kiss, but with a cross to lead his people back to his father. I know you're thinking, okay, prophet, priest, king, sure, Jesus has these roles, but what does that mean 
as we face this weariness or as we face these times, we're considering what Jesus can do for us. And so taking the yarmulkes off, what, what do we make of all of this? How do these words help to a struggling group of first century Jewish Christians about prophets and priests and kings? How do they help us have a bigger picture of Jesus? I think of it this way. Not, not too long ago, I was uh, perusing Facebook and I found one of those videos. You've probably seen uh, one like it, where military parents are returning from active duty and they kind of surprise their kids on their return. Uh, whether it be a dad who like wraps himself in a big Christmas present or a mom who walks into a cafeteria and surprises their kids at school. And I was watching these, and, and, and you've probably seen them, but the reason they're so popular, the reason we see all of these videos time and time again is because they all have the same effect. And despite all of the phone calls and letters and, and videos that are related between these children and their parents, there's nothing like having them be there in person. And it's the same with Jesus, that there's no longer this distance between God. There's no longer this operator in the middle, you know, connecting the lines, that we experience God himself through Jesus. And these identifications of Jesus as prophet and priest and king don't just help us define him, but they help us to establish his role in our lives. That because Jesus is big, we see first that he has a unique identity. That Jesus wasn't just another prophet, just another priest, just another king. He wasn't just another religious teacher or rabbi or thought leader. That he is the fullness of God wrapped in flesh and blood. And that gives him a unique identity because that is a claim that no one else can hold. No one other than Jesus has been able to claim this station of, of fully, fully human and fully divine. And no one else do we see God reveal himself like he reveals himself in Jesus. Verse 3 calls Jesus the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Representation in Greek is the word character. And what this author is speaking about here is this process of making a coin. That you have this, this disc of metal, you have something that is stamped on top of that, and that stamp is called the character, it's called this representation. In other words, when you look at Jesus, you see God. You see the fullness of God clothed in humanity. That the God of the universe who could send entire solar systems spinning out of orbit with a flick of his finger chose to be born to a young, impoverished girl in a stable, and to live this life as an unassuming carpenter turned preacher, and to lay down his life for those whom he created because of his great love for us. That's not just big, that's huge. And because of who he is, because of his unique identity, Jesus also has unique power. His identity, who he is, defines his power, what he can do. And it's a power that no one else has. We're told that through Jesus, the universe was made and that he sustains all of it by his powerful word. The, the, before the world that we know, the, the fallen world that we experience, there was this formless, empty nothingness. And into that formless, empty nothingness, Jesus spoke and the world burst forth. Land and sky and sea and sun and moon and stars and fish and birds and animals and man and woman came bursting forth simply because Jesus spoke it into being. Colossians 1.15 says it this way, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
You see, we weren't formed as a result of billions of years of random chance. Jesus formed us with power and purpose and reason and intentionality. He created us to point to him and to his glory. And he didn't just create us and step away. He continues to sustain his creation. That Every breath that we take is a testament to his goodness and his greatness. And because of that identity and that power, we see that because Jesus is big, he has a unique authority. As these three verses pan out, it kind of makes me laugh a little bit. We continue to see this bigger and bigger picture of Jesus, all he has done and all he is, leading to this, this big climax, this crescendo of he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And it seems kind of anticlimactic, like the, the air is let out of the tires. I mean, here, Jesus, this bigger and bigger picture is building. It's like blowing up this balloon that slips out of your fingers and <laughs> all around the room until it lands flat and shriveled and wrinkly. And as I look at this, like after all these amazing things, Jesus like sat down. Was he tired? But this is kingly language. This is Jesus took his place on the throne. And Jesus holds this unique authority because it's a throne and not a love seat. That we don't get to sit there with him, helping him call the shots or helping him steer the ship. The Bible's word for this is lordship. And what's so hard about lordship is that many of us want Jesus as a savior, but fewer want him as lord and king and master. Many want the benefits that come with the salvation and the hope of Jesus without the demands that he might make upon our lives. But the reality is that Jesus holds the only claim over your life because he has already purchased it with his blood. For some of you, maybe this morning, that's a challenge that you need to respond to. Maybe Jesus' lordship in your life doesn't look like kingly. It looks like a love seat. It doesn't look like a throne. It looks like a partnership. And while certainly Jesus comes alongside of us, never, never think that he is not above us. We have this responsibility as accepting what Jesus has done for us to make him king and lord and master, to recognize his authority in our lives. For others of you this morning, maybe that in that truth, what you need to find is encouragement. Maybe you're in need of encouragement this morning. I'm going to be honest, this week was kind of a heavy one. Different people we know that are, are struggling or sick or just things that are going on, it's easy to feel discouraged sometimes. But if that's where you're at this morning, Look no further than Hebrews 13, 8, where it tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It was what was true back then when these words were written to a group of struggling Christians wondering if it was worth it to follow Jesus are still true today, that Jesus is still prophet, still priest, still king. He still holds this unique identity and power and authority that Jesus is still king and he is still big. And so even when it looks like your world is falling apart, Jesus is still on his throne, still sustaining this world, still ruling, not with an iron hand, but a good and loving hand, as a good and loving shepherd. And so if you're struggling this morning, maybe what I hope you'll find is a bigger picture of Jesus, to see in him not one who is is incapable of saving us, but one that has already laid this path of foundation. Through his sacrifice, through the cross, through the resurrection, we have the hope of the victory. That because Jesus is big, we can have life. See, we don't need anything other than Jesus. That Jesus is enough. Jesus is greater than. Jesus is 
big. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we come before you this morning. And it's easy to look at the world around us, the headlines, the experiences that we have, and to grow weary at times, to be tired, to struggle. And God, in these moments, I pray that you would just remind us that Jesus is greater than. Jesus is greater than our struggles and our, uh, our weariness, that Jesus is greater than the things in this world that we face that seem to be overpowering us. And in the midst uh, of this, that we are reminded of the greatness of Jesus, that Jesus is big. And as we get this bigger picture of Jesus, that we see that he continues to have this role in our lives, to have this hope in our lives, that come through what he has done for us. That through his sacrifice and through his resurrection, we have the hope of a life that endures. And our prayer continues to be, as it was last week, that we would fix our thoughts on you, Jesus. That we would be reminded of who you are and what you have done for us. That we would be reminded that when this world seems to crush us, that you are bigger and greater than what this world has to offer. Jesus, we thank you for your love. Thank you for your spirit that guides us and, sees us and leads us to recognize that you are greater, that you are big, that you are powerful, and that you have the power to change our circumstances. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.